Let's pray before we open the word together this evening. Our Father, we thank you for your holy and errant word. We do pray that you would teach us your truth by it this evening. Would you minister to your people, to those that are gathered in this room? May you tend to our hearts, our minds, our souls. Would you stir our affections? For you are God. We pray all this in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Daniel chapter 2, and we're going to look at the whole chapter this evening. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? And then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. 
And Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have made known to me what we asked of you for you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore, Daniel went in to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I've seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, the stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain, and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and to whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall Arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. The sum of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. 
And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever just as you saw that the stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and he paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering, an incense, be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings. And a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king and appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. <clears throat> well, we left Daniel a couple of weeks ago. You remember as we left Daniel that God had provided for Daniel and his friends who had been faithful to God. He had provided them health, even though they didn't have the same food as all the rest of the wise men or the court servants, and he had then given them wisdom on top of that. And Daniel and his friends, though they had been given great wisdom, they were clearly not considered as wise as some of the other men of the nation of Babylon or of the king's court. For as we see in our passage, Nebuchadnezzar wakes up from his sleep, having had this nightmare of sorts, an awful dream, and he commanded, verse 2, that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned. But Daniel and his friends weren't summoned. But Nebuchadnezzar is gathering together all the rest because he wants to know what this dream is that he has dreamed. Why did Nebuchadnezzar summon these wise men and magicians and enchanters and sorcerers? Because even the most powerful of men are scared in the dark. Nebuchadnezzar has a kingdom, he has personal guards, he has a, an army that can't be rivaled on the face of the earth, and yet you put him alone in the darkness of the night, he has a nightmare, and he's filled with fear. Daniel reminds us in this text, and I think the book does throughout, that even the mightiest of people are simply people. It almost could go unsaid. Seems like we know that with our minds. Ah, a person's a person, and yet we get around certain types of people that hold certain positions or look a certain way or have certain things, and we get anxious, get a little nervous, we get intimidated, sometimes we get fearful. I was 
talking with a fellow pastor the other day who said he was never more nervous than when he was talking, he was asked to come and speak to the MSU football team. He said, I was a sweaty mess standing before him and sharing the gospel. That can be the oddest of circumstances, just where people are at, what position they have, what wealth they have, what beauty they have, what power they have. Daniel reminds us that even the mightiest of people are simply people. Billy Graham had said of him, the presidents, uh, all of these presidents that he walked and ministered to, and their consistent testimony when you read a biography about Billy Graham or you read about these interactions with him and the presidents is that they will all say that what they appreciated about him was he just treated them as another person. He didn't couch things. He didn't quake in his boots. He spoke to them as one person speaking to another person. And I'm sure that made all the difference in those relationships. He wasn't in awe. He saw mere men before him, not so different from himself. You remember this. Every man is only a man. Every woman is only a woman. I was at a meeting one night at a, at a former church that I served. It was, it was a large church, 3,000, 4,000 people. And so you don't know everybody in the church and sitting at a banquet one night uh, for senior citizens in the church. Someone came up to my ear and they whispered in my ear, they said, do you know who you're sitting across the table from? I I don't know. And they whispered a name. And I looked across the table and it was an older man that was dressed for the occasion. He was dressed up and yet all of his buttons were misaligned. And I watched him as his drool was kind of slipping from his lips. He had clearly had a stroke. And I watched as he, he tried to hold his fork and get food to his mouth. I went home that night and I remembered the name and so I looked it up not knowing who it was and, and I was shocked. The man at one time had been one of the five wealthiest people in the entire world. He held incredible power and influence. And now, and I don't mean it disrespectfully, but he had trouble holding a fork. Men are simply men. Women are simply women. Even the mightiest and most powerful are but mere people. Just a little more empowered dust and dirt than the rest of us. That's it. But still dirt. There's a debate about whether Nebuchadnezzar could remember his dream. Some think that his language here seems to imply he couldn't remember it. I tend to agree with most commentators through the centuries that have said, no, he remembers it. Nebuchadnezzar is wise to his wise men. He knows that they are playing games often and they make bold pronouncements without really needing to know anything. And so he's going to test them. They must tell him his dream and then they are to interpret his dream for him. And these wise men are just as afraid as Nebuchadnezzar, if not more, because he's threatened to tear them limb from limb if they can't do this. 
And you think of these wise men and these enchanters and these magicians. They would have been feared in the city of Babylon. They had access to the great king, the emperor. They went into his courtroom. They mixed with him day in and day out. And yet they are quaking. They are fearful. They respond with a form of truth in verses 10 and 11. Say, no one can give the information that you desire, O king. It's too difficult. Only the gods can do that. Like their king, when they were in the dark without knowledge, they were fearful. Even the mightiest. Even the most powerful are simply people. It doesn't take too much to find all of us humbled, and scared, and dependent. I was having a conversation uh, in the morning service with a couple of men here at URC before the morning services. They are two of our biggest and strongest men in the congregation. I won't mention their names because some of you would be discouraged that it wasn't you, but big, strong men. We were talking about one of them has been through health issues, and the three of us were talking about how it can just be the smallest of things that can lay us low. We think we are so able-bodied, we are so in charge, we are so in control. I often think can be a microscopic virus that invades my blood system. You can't even see it. Now I can't get out of bed. Even the mightiest, most powerful are simply people. A second notice from this passage that faith provides courage in the face of might and power. Nebuchadnezzar decrees that because these wise men of Babylon couldn't do what he requested, that every wise man should be put to death. His fear drives him to a quick response of anger, and now Daniel and his friends are threatened, and Daniel hears of this decree, and so he approaches the captain of the king's guard, and when he hears what is needed, he requests an audience with the king. Not to dissuade him, but to fulfill what was being asked. He would provide an interpretation of this unknown dream. The fear of not knowing didn't grip Daniel. It didn't grip him because he knows the one who knows all things. And he's gripped by him. There's a rest in faith. There's a rest in faith that the unfaith-filled, know nothing of and cannot know. Faith can make the humblest of people the most courageous of people. You don't have to possess the power of Samson or the handsome appearance of David or the knowledge of Paul or the experience of Ruth to serve God in mighty ways courageously. No, what God uses and what Mark sows that God chooses to use is simply trusting faith. I think it's fascinating that Hebrews 11, what we often call the, the hall of fame, it's the hall of fame of faith. You think, well, it could have been the, the hall of fame of preaching, the hall of fame of teaching, the hall of fame of might, or the 
Hall of Fame of Conquerors or the Hall of Fame even of Love. It's not. It's a Hall of Fame of Faith. Faith can make the humblest of people the most courageous of people. God chooses to use those who are people of faith. Faith. If we but have the faith of a mustard seed, we can move mountains. Even the humblest among us. Daniel has faith. And it provides courage for him in the face of the greatest might and the greatest power on the face of the earth. This is clearly a, a faith that Daniel didn't stumble into. This is a faith that he had for some time. We often think, well, we'll rise to the occasion when it comes. No. This is a man that is as clear as we go through the book of Daniel. That is a man committed to prayer every day. This is a man that knew the word. A man that sought to walk with God day in and day out. And so when the time came, he could rise to the occasion. He didn't need to drum it up. He didn't go to a guru for advice. He simply approached this dire situation like he had approached all of life with faith. He goes to his friends and he asks them to join him in a prayer meeting and and notice what he asked them to pray in verse 18, to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. In faith, he looks to God for mercy. And we're told in verse 19 that God answered their prayers. And Daniel then responds with praise to God. And in that prayer of praise, which we find in verses 20 through 23, Daniel focuses upon God being a God of wisdom and might and power. To him belong all wisdom and all might and all power, Daniel is saying. Look at his might as it's detailed by Daniel. He says, you are the one who removes kings and sets them up. Look at wisdom. You are the one who gives wisdom. You reveal deep things. You know what is in the darkness. And Daniel knows in faith that what wisdom he has has come from God. He says, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Daniel is a wise man. But he knows the wisdom that he has does not begin with him. That it came from another. What he knows comes from God who has all knowledge. And has no wisdom but what comes from God. And so though Daniel in many respects is a mighty man in this moment, he even says such. You've given me wisdom and might there in verse 23. He knows that what knowledge he has, what might he has, has come from God. And so he remains a humble man because he knows from where he got it. Funny thing, we will become so proud about what we are and who we are. We're walking into the room when my kids were very small and watching television and they were squabbling. Uh, and I remember walking in and saying, what, what is going on? 
All right, Ethan and his little, probably four-year-old, five-year-old voice saying, she wants to watch Sesame Street, and I don't want to watch Sesame Street. I said, well, why? He said, because it is so babyish. I want to watch Curious George. The degrees are so small. I think the differences between us are so great and they're so small. Whatever wisdom or knowledge or power or might that you and I have more than any other is but a gift from God's hand and it is not due to anything in and of me or in and of you. Pride in a Christian is one of the silliest things. It is also one of the ugliest things. Because it demeans everything that we confess to believe. It makes a mockery out of our faith. My mother tells a story about when I was in first grade and she went to serve as a room mom on the day that we were doing Halloween at school. She said that she showed up and every kid was putting on their Halloween costumes. We were supposed to go on a parade around the, the parking lot there at the elementary school. And everybody was supposed to wear their costumes. And there was one little girl that, that had no costume. My mom tells the story that this little girl kept saying that her sister was going to come and, and bring the costume. And the minutes kept passing by, and they were passing by, and eventually it was time for us to line up. And then finally, all that anxious anticipation was fulfilled as the girl's sister came to the door with a, a brown paper bag that my mom says was all wrinkled and just a mess. Sister handed the bag to the teacher, and the teacher didn't even open it. She just handed the bag to my mom. My mom opened the bag, and she said she was absolutely shocked what was inside. She said it was just tatters of cloth. She said, but she pulled it out, and this little girl was just so excited to put on this costume that clearly seen too many days and too many Halloweens and too much play. My mom says that she spent the next minutes frantically finding safety pins and trying to safety pin together all the scraps of this costume as she kind of draped it on this little girl. And she said we all then lined up and that little girl beamed from ear to ear. We're all simply bearing tattered, ripped, incomplete outfits. None of us has all wisdom. None of us has all knowledge. None of us has all faith. And what we have, we, has, we have as a gift. I deserved my costume that day no more than that little girl deserved hers. Mine was better, not because of me, but because of what was gifted to me. Daniel understood this, and so he remains absolutely humble. Nebuchadnezzar, as we'll see in the weeks to come, will fail to understand this, and he'll be struck down in his pride. Look at how Daniel approaches even the conveying of this wisdom that he now possesses 
even prior to the interpretation, he'll make it clear in verse 28 that it's God himself who will reveal this mystery that Daniel is about to reveal. That's humility. He knows that what he knows is simply a gift from God. He says in verse 30, But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all of the living. I'm not better than others. Let me share with you what I know. When he shares, it's not about him. He uses the wisdom given to him, not to fly his own flag, not to point Nebuchadnezzar and others to him, but to God. That's a faithful man. And that before the most powerful, mighty man on the face of the earth and could have easily secured any position he wanted by conveying that this was his wisdom. This was his knowledge. This is his ability. Instead, he seizes the moment point Nebuchadnezzar and all those in the court to God. That's good evangelism. Daniel says it before giving the interpretation, then he makes it clear after he gives the interpretation, verse 45, a great God has made known to the king shall be after this. A humble individual operating by faith can do mighty things for the glory of God, even stand before kings and witness to God. Finally, let's see, though might and power will come and go in this world, God's kingdom will have the final word. It's probably helpful to stop here and point out that if you look at chapter 2 and you get insight into this and What is it it there? Verse 4, Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, From there in chapter 2 all the way through chapter 7, the book of Daniel is in the language of Aramaic. Now when you and I think of the Old Testament, we think Hebrew, rightfully. When we think of the New Testament, we think Greek, rightfully. But there are portions of the Scriptures, small portions, that are in Aramaic. And here from chapter 2 to chapter 7, kind of the middle portion of the book of Daniel It is in Aramaic, and that is purposeful. It's important because it seems that Daniel does so because this is a message that the Babylonian or Gentile people need to hear. In the rest of the book, he's addressing to the Jews, to the Israelites. But these chapters here, from 2 through 7, they're warning the Gentiles, and so Daniel speaks in the language of the Gentiles at the time, and it will also be the language of Gentiles in the time of Jesus, Aramaic. And because of that, many critics of the scriptures, especially the book of Daniel, want to give it a late date. They say, well, this is clearly proof that Daniel was writing, this was not a book written by Daniel, but at a later date. And they want to especially emphasize that because of the dreams and the interpretation that Daniel gives here in chapter 2. It's It's not like the prophecies of poem readers or astrologists. He gives details. And they're details that are fulfilled in history. Not limited. Of course, we know that God of all wisdom, as Daniel said, has given him this knowledge. and So it is not so hard to believe. He would foretell these things centuries before they would happen. 
The first part of the statue, the head was of fine gold. As Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar in verse 38, you are the head of gold. Babylon is the first of the world empires. It is introduced for the first time to us in Genesis 10 there where we read of Nimrod and him establishing a kingdom there in the area of Babylon. And then when you get to Genesis chapter 11, it is there at Babylon that the people gather together to try and build a tower to God, to rival God. And so God will disperse the people and he will confuse their languages. And so Babylon in Scripture is the great antitype to the kingdom of God. And Babylon will clearly reach its zenith. It will reach its height of, of its power during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. Its might and its power are evident. It occupied land, was feared by other nations. It accomplished great architectural feats like the hanging gardens at Babylon. But there's nothing that has rivaled it. Before it, it is the greatest empire on the face of the earth that the earth had ever seen to that point. So complete was Nebuchadnezzar's rule and so great his might and so great his power that Daniel points out in verse 38 that wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beast of the fields and the birds of the heavens making you rule over them all. That is that you have such complete sovereignty, such might, such power that even the birds of the heavens... Even the beasts of the field are ruled over by you, Nebuchadnezzar. But notice, Daniel is clear. Though he has great might and great power, Nebuchadnezzar, it is not absolute power. For Nebuchadnezzar's rule comes from above, verse 37. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom of power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given. And then verse 38, making you rule over them all. And here is a good reminder for this earthly king. What you have, you also have by divine gift. The power you yield, the might you wield, it was given to you even as the wisdom was given to me. No gift, no wisdom. No gift, no power. And here's the warning that Daniel is giving. It can be taken away at any time. Why? Because God is sovereign. That's the point of the dream. The second portion of the statue is the chest and arms that are made of silver. It's, a, it's inferior, Daniel says, says, just as silver is inferior to gold. And so this empire is in many ways inferior to Babylon, though its might and its power will be greater so that it can conquer the Babylonian empire. And this is the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, which will reach its ultimate power in the reign of King Darius, who will meet later in this book in Daniel chapter 5. The third part of the statue is its middle and thighs, which are made of bronze. And again, bronze is an inferior metal to silver, and yet this civilization, that of Greece, as it's ruled over by Alexander the Great, will conquer Medo-Persia. And its might and its power will be greater, though maybe it is inferior in other ways. And Alexander's kingdom, like Daniel says, will stretch... Across the earth, it will stretch from all the way from the Indus Valley in India. It will stretch across the Mediterranean world. It will cover Eastern Europe. It will cover Egypt. 
And finally, the fourth part of the statue, that of iron. It's strong, but it's inferior to bronze. It's less valuable, though more utilitarian. And it's represented in the legs and the feet. It will be mixed with clay because it's an empire that's filled with diversity. There will be all kinds of intermarriages. They will allow it to stand. This will help it to stand, having kind of this diversity and collecting all these nations together, but it will also make it vulnerable, of course. So Daniel is prophesying that this kingdom will also eventually fall. He's making these prophecies before the Greek empire ever existed. He's making these prophecies before the Medo-Persian Empire ever existed. He's making these prophecies centuries and centuries and centuries before the Roman Empire ever existed. And yet his interpretation of this dream came true. Why? Because the God of heaven is the one who gives wisdom and power. He has it all. He gave the knowledge to Daniel, and he will give to, and he will take power from these different empires according to his divine will and his divine plan. It is in us interesting, as has been observed as people have looked at the book of Daniel, that the Gentile kingdoms here, they're all considered one in one sense. That they're all part of one persona before God. They make up one body. These historical kingdoms are all built one upon another, one consuming the one before it. The Medo-Persian Empire conquers the Babylonian Empire and kind of subsumes it. The Greek Empire does the same to the Medo-Persian Empire. And then the Roman Empire engulfs the Greek Empire. So as that kingdom of iron stands, having crushed the rest to pieces, it represents all might and all power that man can and will ever wield. It's so little compared to the might and the power of God. That iron kingdom as Daniel sees it shall be crushed as E.J. Young, an old Westminsterian, once said, he said, by something far stronger than iron, the power of the sovereign God. The Gentile kingdoms of this world which seems so mighty and powerful will all disappear and God's kingdom alone will remain. Daniel's prophecy. That's his interpretation of the dream. That's what you've been shown, Nebuchadnezzar. It is what the God of the heavens, the God who gave you might, the God who gave you power, the one who holds all things in the palm of his hand, the one whose sovereignty is unequaled, is unrivaled, cannot be defeated. This is what he has decreed by his infinite wisdom. And so it shall come to pass. And it did. The might and power of men is so small. The kingdoms of men are a pale comparison to the kingdom of God. God's kingdom is divine. Ours but human. The kingdoms of men can be conquered. God's kingdom is undeterrable. The kingdoms of men fade in time. God's kingdom is eternal. Every Alexander dies 
every Sennacherib wastes away, every Roman law fades, every Stalin rots, every Nebuchadnezzar is humbled. Everyone. But Christ comes into the world bringing the kingdom of God in His person and nothing, nothing prevails against His might and His power. He can't. He's that stone cut without human hands in the dream. It is nothing could form or shape him. He's uncut. He's unmoldable. He's unformable by men because he's from God. When Christ says the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church, it's not just a kind of comforting word of wisdom to us. It's reality. It's an ironclad promise because it can't be otherwise. He holds all might and power. He defines it. So the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. It's an impossibility. It can't happen because he would have to cease to be who he is for that to be accomplished. The kingdom of Christ comes into the world and it establishes itself and it remains forever. Every other kingdom, no matter how mighty, no matter how powerful, vanishes in time. Everyone. It is a kingdom worth giving your allegiance to. It's a kingdom worth laboring for. The king of this kingdom is yours and my defender. You know that? One who has all might and all power is your defender. I love the shorter catechism. It says that when it's speaking about the office of Christ as king, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says that he is, he is defending and protecting us. And then it says he is laying beneath his feet all of his and our enemies. His and king of all power and all might defending you, waging war on your behalf. Victory's done. It's complete. It's fixed. It's finished. It's just a matter of time until we see it all consummated. It is worth having faith in such a king worth living in humble faith serving such a king. Daniel does so and will do so. Nebuchadnezzar, though he shows signs of promise in this passage, we will find fails to do so. And so God will humble him and do it in demonstrable ways to show his might and his power. Let's pray together.
Father in heaven, we do pray that thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're thankful that the kingdom that comes into this world in the person of our Savior is a kingdom of might, of power, of wisdom. It is unassailable. It is unrivaled. It is complete. We're thankful that we have such a king to serve. May we do so in faith, a courageous faith, willingly stands for our Savior, recognizing that our King is our defender, that His will shall be accomplished as it has been decreed. That even as these prophecies, these dreams were interpreted and they came to be, so all the promises of our Savior, of His return upon the clouds with the angels and the archangels, ruling and reigning and dashing all of our enemies to pieces. He's ruling over, over, over us for all of eternity. And it is all not only promised, but it is guaranteed. Help us along and to look forward in faith to it being realized and consummated. And to live in light of it we walk through this land. We give you praise and we give you glory. To you, our Father, to you, Christ, our King of kings, to you, the Spirit that indwells us. In Christ's name, amen.